0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. On today's episode, we speak to the writer Andrew O'Hagan about his latest novel, Mayflies. The story is set in mid-1980s Glasgow amongst a tight clan of young friends, likely lads who live for, well, all the usual things, but these are also a gang of thoughtful, funny, erudite boys who spar over their knowledge of Yeats, Edith Sitwell and John Osborne, whose gods are the Smiths, the Fall, New Order and Echo and the Bunnymen, and whose passion for social justice, caring in their own way, for the dispossessed of the Dole Office and the decimation wrought by the closing down of Britain's heavy industry. At the centre of this group and of the story are Jimmy, the sensitive narrator, generous in remembering everyone else's jokes and successes, and Tully, his best friend, handsome, sacred, profane, a force of nature. The novel in two halves is the story of their youthful friendship on a musical pilgrimage to Manchester, and then, years later, Jimmy receiving a phone call from Tully with devastating news. Both halves are tender, freighted with reminiscence, and powerful. And it's a novel about the intense romance of friendship. Love, really. Andrew Hagen, lovely to have you here in the studio to let some daylight in upon magic. We've just been talking about our radio voices.
1: Yes, indeed. I've got mine prepared.
0: (laughs) And how we're quite excited today to be um, in Studio One here at Monocle Towers rather than in the Zoomiverse.
1: It's Um, just heaven to be facing a human being. You know, I've had enough now um, to be actually talking to a person across a desk in uh, full flight of existence and presence. It's a pleasure.
0: We are, we are very here. Very here. Very here. We, we sort of joke about the mid Atlantic Scots of Radio Clyde in the 1980s. Oh my God. I feel God. like you listening to that has informed at least half of this <laughs> wonderful new novel uh, or new and paperback, Andrew Mayflies. And that great wealth of, I don't know, where did it come from? That great wealth, that great clatter of lyrical insanely tuneful, meaningful music that you write about so eloquently and so passionately in the book. Was that kind of in between bursts of mid-Atlantic Scots and cheesy DJs? Well,
1: definitely. I mean, do you know, the real truth, I mean, you've hit on something nobody else has recognised, which is that the real energy in this book is a sort of, you know, almost hysterical flight from embarrassment and from the (laughs) embarrassment of the 1980s. You know, The the great fight was against inauthenticity. You know, we can be as pious and as politically correct as we like when we look back at the Thatcher era in the UK. But so many of us were actually just in a permanent state of embarrassment (laughs) and trying hard not to sound like the DJs sounded on Radio Clyde. We grew up outside Glasgow, and these Radio Clyde guys would be like just ordinary scottish working class blokes by day but by night they had these fantastic accents where they just arrived mid-atlantic where it wasn't quite american enough yeah and it wasn't scottish enough either so um that was just part of the general embarrassment we were running away from into independent music and joining the the fight on behalf of the miners and all that you know we 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 put uh We put stilts under ourselves and think it's very high-minded. And I hope I don't in the book, but certainly the comedy of all that and trying to be a young guy who has a kind of integrity... A group integrity, yeah. That was a kind of energy for me in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, no, that you write about the music, um, which informs this—it's the sort of spine, maybe, of of the, of the of the of this friendship group that you write about, who go on this wonderful weekend to Manchester, the Lost Weekend. But it's it's sort of it's stuck in it, apart from one of your protagonists. It's stuck. It's front and centre in everybody's memory, and and, yeah. and certainly of your narrator.
1: It's funny that I think everybody has, if they think about it, a moment. It can take a bit of sort of winkling out, but everybody has a moment that was, as it were, the pinnacle of their youth, yeah, of course, we don't recognize it at the time it 's just another Saturday night, yeah, you know you're you're full of banter, full of common destiny, full of a sense of your desperation for the next pint, yeah, you know did that girl look at me? Oh my God, <laughs> shut up, you know and all of that energy, I think uh, seems so sort of whatever at the time, but looking back and it's one of the sort of expenses. Uh, and delights of of growing older, is you can look back and almost pinpoint the moment when your youth and your groupthink was at its height. And for me, that was that trip to Manchester in July 1986 that is the backbone of the book. Those lads were in tune. You know, they were at their height with each other. They spoke almost a private language. They were delighted with the whole business of existence for one moment. And that was... uh, the core of the book for me.
0: It's very easy to fall in love with these young men. They are, two of them particularly seem to have an exceptionally close bond. Obviously, this is Jimmy, your narrator, and Tully, who's the sort of focus of the book. And it's a great, well, I I guess it's a great love story. It's a great book about the the great romance of friendship. You
1: describe it perfectly to my mind. I mean, we too often shy away from the notion of what a love affair is Mm. in this country. But in 2021, I think we've gloriously arrived at the moment where those old paternalistic notions of, oh, yeah, yeah, he's my friend, but I wouldn't dare, you know, hug him or anything like that. You know, my father's generation were kind of permanently petrified by the notion of sort of uh, intimacy with other men, whereas even straight men, you know, and certainly gay men, I mean, the whole culture has flooded our lives delightfully, and part of it for me was that suddenly you could admit to the love affairs that you had With your friends, they weren't just. Oh, he's my pal. Gruffly, he said. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he's all right. He's all right, I suppose. <laughs> if you push me, yeah. um, but they were actually platonic love affairs that you thought about them, you worried mm. about them, you shared day and night with them, and you never forgot them. Yeah. You know. And in what sense is that not a love affair? Yeah, it's you
0: know? wonderful. And and the the looking out for each other. Your narrator Jimmy is, and he ends up being. A novelist, a writer, yep. and a novelist, um, and, and moving down um, from from Glasgow to to London, he's a great noticer of things. But then, you, then in, in, it transpires in in all the electric conversations that this group of mates have that he's great and he's generous in 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 um, allotting the clever things that everybody else says to those people. He doesn't say, "And then I thought this funny thing." There's a lot of gr- cracking dialogue.
1: I think it's it was accurate in my memory. I mean, mm. of course, I mean. I mean, I wouldn't wish to deny it for a second. This is a very autobiographical book. And the energy that it draws on is the energy of memory. Yes, imagination is all over it, and my freedoms as a writer are all over it. But the core material and characters are from life. And I can tell you without hesitation that those boys were like that. They were the cleverest people I ever met. Mm. They were all pretty, you know, poorly educated, really. I mean, uh, very few of them at that stage had gone to university. I mean, the main character was on the brink of going and he was the first in a family of four boys to have gone. It was a working class environment, but the cleverness was native, instinctive, drawn from popular culture. What we had in common is that we were all great fans of things. Yeah. You know, obsessed with English <laughs> kitchen sink drama, you know, obsessed with punk. Absolutely, you know, sl- slaves to, you know, surprising things like, you know, the architecture of uh, Rennie McIntosh. You know, all of us could speak for hours in the pub about that. And quite distinctively as well, if I can say. You know, these boys were uh, sort of autodidactic devils in the pub who sort of knew their territory. I mean, they could have talked about The Clash and what every single sleeve note and every single album was. I mean, they had their specialisms. And some people have said to me, did they really speak that way? I mean, is it possible that they were all sort of on politics and... Uh, popular culture in such a kind of on-point way. I said, I'm afraid to tell you they were. If anything, I brought it down a bit. For the
0: <laughs> but novel. there is this wonderful competitive, this the banter. It's, banter's been given a bad name, maybe, since... <laughs> Since the era of Top thank Gear God, and everything, thank God you mean, said that. It's been given a bad name. And this, this, it was wonderful reading again, reading Mayflies again, and kind of slotting back into this world of this on point. All of your, all of all of your protagonists, or all, all of your characters, this group of mates, seem like. They're sort of sociable solipsists, you know what yeah. I mean? They're, they're, they're yeah. all in mean, their own little world. As you say, they're these autodidacts, but they're yeah. so generous with each other, laughing at each other's jokes, joshing with each other, making it wondering where it'll go next. It's a game of tennis constantly, where they're they're constantly. trying to have a rally rather than win the match.
1: Absolutely, they weren't competitive, my mates. You hear these descriptions of typical young male behaviour, like endlessly competitive and sexually avaricious, and mm. you know, undermining each other. I never saw that. I mean, we hardly had a girlfriend between us, that's true, but that was our fault. (laughs) You had
0: each other. (laughs) We had
1: each other, and we had our banter. And the banter was not sexist, racist, misogynistic, hate-filled, rubbish. You know, you hear these things talked about, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm absolutely certain that there are problems with certain men in drink when they get together, but we weren't like that. You know, in fact, we were constantly introducing new avenues of you know political engagement with each other. You know, through the daftness and the banter and the silly talk, mm. um, but in the solipsism, as you rightly say, you know, we're all really deeply interested in ourselves <laughs> yeah. in some way. That time <laughs> but generous that enough to be interested in each other, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think so. the ball. Well, you learnt I from your mates. You looked at your mates. Rather than looking in the mirror, I mean, we all dressed the same anyway, and we had the same hair. Yeah. So if you wanted to see what you looked like, you just looked at your best mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who needs a mirror? So tell me,
0: tell me about that. Because I know you were in a in a band and played on the sort of you know indie royalty of John Peel's Radio we One. We did.
1: That was the best day of our lives. So what, what was your what was your look
0: in the Mayflies days?
1: Right, the classic somewhere. look, okay, was um, so Levi's. Um, the darker shade of blue yep. and sometimes black Tick. with heavy turn-ups, yeah, you know, okay. pronounced turn-ups. And sometimes those crepe shoes, you know, yeah. there was a whole lot of hush-poppy action going on. I was never quite <laughs> sure about the hush puppy, but... Is this um, like sort
0: of Clark's Wallaby yeah, kind of Yeah, exactly, sort of
1: so felt shoes. Yeah. But there was a there was definite <laughs> sweat ending to the leg situation going on with a lot of the mates. Um You know, uh, plaid shirts, big time, white t-shirt underneath... Leather biker's jacket over the top. Sometimes, if you are a bit poorer, as I was, the boys all worked before I did. I was the student, so leather jackets was often a bit beyond me as I was growing. So it would be like black (laughs) denim jacket with badges. Now the badges very important. So if you sort of rocked up at the pub with your sparkling new denim jacket and you had forgot to put on, you know, fifteen badges, then that would be an issue. A bit too shop, a bit too shop fresh. Shop fresh. Mate, yeah. you've just come from the mall. <laughs> you know, Fresh from that. CNA. Yeah. Look at O'Hagan. Yeah. Here he comes. You yeah. had some bashed, slightly rusted, lived-in old punk badges yeah. um, for bands that you barely liked Yeah, <laughs> somewhere on, on, on your into your
0: chest the meaningfulness of these kind of tokens and of the of the language and of that great great deep love of bands and of Yates and of, and of all sorts of things are uh, particularly loved and found it quite moving the, the relationship that uh, Jimmy has with his English teacher Mrs mm-hmm. O'Connor Did you have a Mrs. O'Connor?
1: I did, you know. It's worth noting, I think, and you touch on it, that all these people, these relationships were based on passing information and enthusiasm to each other. And I can tell you, in my opinion, that was to do with life before the internet. When you heard of a name, somebody said, Sheila Delaney. You know, Morrissey, in one of his interviews, mentions this playwright from Manchester, from Salford. Sheila Delaney, you know, wrote A Taste of Honey. And then... You'd all be off to the library looking for Sheila Delaney, talking to each other, looking for bits of biography, scraps. You'd write to these fan clubs and get information back through the post. (laughs) We're all in fanzines, you know, trying to find information. That was how you coalesced as a group of enthusiasts then. Because there was no internet. You can just type something in and suddenly everything you'd want to know and all the reviews of her plays of Sheila Delaney's bouncing before you. It wasn't like that. We... If you like join forces and found avenues into each other's personalities by sort of group seeking, yeah, and a lot of it came from popular culture because you would you would read the NME and suddenly the two brothers in the Jesus and Mary chain were quoting Yates or referring to maybe not not those two but <laughs> <laughs> some independent band members yeah. and it would send you yeah. on a chase and I had a teacher though. Uh, you mentioned Mrs. O'Connor in the book, and she was absolutely a portrait drawn from life. I had it a Mrs. McNeil, and she was the flame-haired beauty of the sixth form. Right, you know, crush th- slash,
0: but sort of a champion, I suppose, a
1: total champion. <laughs> and we thought she was old, but she's probably about twenty-four. <laughs> <laughs> you know and she came into the class and she pl- plucked me out one day and she said i need to tell you something you're going for these silly job interviews at likes in shops and in factories mm. but you've actually read more books than i have and you can go to university she was the first person who ever used sentences like that to me and my parents you know went straight very direct
0: into work. that very direct way of talking which it seems like the adults in your book when, when when, the guys are young, in the first half of the book, don't there's a, such an indirect, there's such a protection from reality, despite it, the kind of reality of much of their economic situation. They were quite
1: held back, the boys, for all our enormous mm. banter and chat and uh, mutual enjoyment. We didn't really speak about the troubles in our lives directly to each other. I mean, many of our fathers were alcoholics. It was a difficult mm. time in Britain. You know, a lot of men had been laid off their work. We were in a heavy industrial area which had been decimated by Thatcherism. And the whole monetarist culture had had a direct impact in our houses. Mm. You know, fathers losing jobs, mother being laid off, boys not getting apprenticeships. It just was a particularly difficult time. And we didn't really speak about the the personal politics of it. I mean, it took years for my best friend Keith and I to talk about the fact that both of our fathers had a drink problem. Mm. And he was the model for Tully, the main character in the book. Hugely energetic and attractive guy, the lead singer in the band. Yeah. You know the guy with the best record collection, the highest cheekbones, the funniest <laughs> patter. Damn him! You know him. Yeah. So I said before that looking in the mirror, you just had to look at your mate, except him. You knew he looked better than you. Yeah. Um, but you know that intimacy uh, was founded on a kind of, uh, if you like, a, a withheldness about our personal lives. It took years, decades, really, for us to look back and say, "This is what was happening in our houses," mm. and that.
0: That sort of, as we say, the reality and sometimes harsh reality of of what that was growing up. And it's not it's not a lie to create a fiction, a social fiction, you know, a a wonderful social life, this incredible chat and banter, this knowledge where you come up. Big subjects from a strange way round because yeah. you get you come you know you're reading the index you're reading the glossary before chapter one in certain respects because it's not like the knowledge of the internet uh, yeah. where everything everything is a greatest hits album. Sure. Andrew O'Hagan, these are his books this is this is what he thinks about this that and the other here's some interviews. It's that necessary st- thing of that pre-internet idea of learning which is where yeah you come at things from strange yes. angles you become fans of things not knowing
1: what the greater portion of and it was is. and with real spontaneity mm. you know you can come home from a festival that lasted a weekend asking questions about who is Jean-Paul Sartre and, you know, what are these 60s girl bands I haven't heard yet that are supposed to be so revolutionary mm-hmm. and, you know, and here's an American novelist, Jack Kerouac, who who's that? I must try and, back, you know, I'm in the library on Monday morning looking up, you know, uh, Desolation Angels on, yeah. on the road. That, that was what it was like. You were always sent off in new directions uh, by social experience. And without being too heavy about it, I think that's been reversed by social media. You don't, you're not sent on journeys by social media. Social media is the journey. Yeah. To use your word, it's a solipsistic sort of echo chamber quite often. I've got a 17-year-old daughter. She's marvellous. She spends a lot of her life on her own in company.
0: Yeah. That's strange. What does she, I wonder, make of your characters in this book, if that's not too personal a question? I mean, it's, it's because it's, They're not as young as your daughter, but they're twenty.
1: Well, they feel differently, uh, our children, when they look at those relationships. They think, "Christ, what a lot of work!" Mm, I mean, she thinks she rose her eyes. Say all that. She rose her eyes with disbelief when I described what it was like wanting to hear the new single by the by Echo and the Bunny Man. Yeah. That I had to go on a walk to the train station, get on the train, go to Glasgow, walk up Renfield Street, go into the record shop, buy the single, do all the journey in reverse, then put it on my record player and yeah. listen to it. And she's like, You're making that up. I said, Babe, that is what <laughs> it was like. Yeah. You know, I had to and before that, by the way, I had to spend the week collecting the 75 pence yeah. or whatever it would be to buy the single. So and she's like, But 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 why would MD do that? I said, Because there was no other way of hearing it unless you sat with your ear cocked to the radio, listen to John Peel, waiting for him to play, and then you've got it once. Yeah. Or trying to press record on your <laughs> stack, system. which happens in the which yes. happens in the book. Yeah, yeah. Some one of the one of the mates
0: is a, a dab hand, but then gets lazy, and there's it's a drunk. lot of talking. Gets drunk. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You can't can't record things properly without shouting uh, various expletives <laughs> into the recording
0: device. And then all those rituals, which which reminded me of, again of of. of that that's what I did. I mean, it, it, the rituals in that are part of the enjoyment. I don't know. I mean, your Jimmy in the in the in the novel is sort of accused by Tully near the end of kind of not setting out in any way, but you know, of kind of. Putting on uh, Echo and the Bunny Man or whatever, whenever he wants to go, to, whenever he's getting ready to go to a party, or the bla- yeah. blasting the Smiths out whenever he and his wife go to a party. But basically, yeah. most of the time, he's listening to Marla and Ravel.
1: Well, that's right. His wife is the goat at him for, you know, uh, Tully's still, and there were guys like that. They were still holding on to their old enthusiasms into their 40s and 50s. Whereas the narrator of this book has gone to London long since, and he's become this middle-class person, and his wife, you know, uh, makes a fool of him for sticking um, Marler on as they're getting him <laughs> dressed to go to a function, <laughs> and his old pals would laugh at that because they're still listening yeah. to the Smiths. Come on, darling, um, it's his fourth. It's, it's the, the jolly one. Uh, so it's the jolly <laughs> one, and so we could play Heart Full of Hollow if you like. Yeah. But you know, those boys were listening to the Smiths again you know, 30 years after the band split Mm. up. And, you know, that's the thing about uh, personal history and the book tries to encapsulate that is that time comes so fast at you and suddenly the decades are behind you and the distance between your teenage self and who you are now arrives so suddenly that um, you want to slow the whole thing down and ask what was it all about. Yeah, And I think that that's the question that really rises out of Mayflies. Is what was that friendship, what was that lifetime experience of camaraderie all about?
0: Was there a reason for writing the novel at the time you, you wrote it, presumably two or three years ago? Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, I was in the middle of another novel. Yeah. I mean, a huge social novel, Caledonian Road, which I'm looking to finish this year. Um, and I stopped that book, paused, I should say, mm. paused on it to to write Mayflies because my dear friend from childhood, Keith Martin, who was the uh, centre of a group of us for so long, um, had got cancer and was dying. And he asked me very directly, he said, would you ever write about us? He knew how rich it was. He was a great reader, a mm. great autodidact, a teacher in the end, actually. Mm. He went beyond the autodidact and formally educated and started <sighs> being an educator. But he wanted us to last. He wanted the story of the friendship to be... yeah. To be on the shelves. He, he felt that it would give him hope in that last year of his life. And it re- I think it did. And it gave us something to, to rehearse with each other. And we all did. We, we sort of brought the material together as a group. You know, I kept asking the boys questions and we looked at old photos and went back. But I have to say to you, it wasn't a struggle. You know, some books come for free. Very, very few it's usually just an endless slog uphill, pushing a boulder that threatens <laughs> yeah. to and often does roll back over you. Yeah. But in this case, it was a gift because that whole landscape was available to me. The landscape of memory was just sitting there with its soundtrack completely intact. All I had to do was walk among it and be true to it, find the true sentences for it. Um, but it was a gift.
0: I wanted to ask you about. We've talked about the great sort of the facility of language of your group of of buddies. Yeah, their sort of self constructs, and that the competitive nature of that, the economic problems of that time, and Thatcherism in formerly industrial. Really, I mean, I say formerly industrial. It was the year before it was an industrial city. You know,
1: just right after the Um, the miners' strike. know of eighty four, eighty five. You know, so these boys are walking about in the novel. Only eight months later. What what was the wellspring?
0: Maybe it's an impossible thing to answer this, but I wonder if you can be drawn on what the wellspring of that intelligence, that good natured kind of banter comes from, the erudition of some of those bands and the references of those bands. It was such a moment there in the early nineteen eighties where that indie spirit which was, seemed to be very working class, it was super intelligent, it was
1: political. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't always funny, but it was really well-intentioned. I mean, every individual from the time would have their own answer to this, and I'm glad you invite me to think about it, because it is, for me, one of the primal energies in this book. And I think in a lot of what I write, actually, which was the attempt to, if you like, answer back coarseness mm. in the society... I mean, yeah,
0: flashness. Yeah,
1: yeah. Thatcherism and monetarism and the whole sort of uh, money sustained ethos that came about in Britain in the eighties was actually quite a shock if you look at the history of the of British character, you mm. know, of the whole development of uh, Britishness, and by that I include all the ethnic influx into Britain that makes Britain so interesting, the immigrant experience, all of that notion of this these islands you know, and all their watery borders being sort of, you know, containing a people that was constantly changing, constantly growing, but had some essential values at its core. I really believe in some of that. And the 80s changed it. It made us a much more competitive and much greedier group of people. Yeah. And a lot of what those bands were saying and what the energy of those lyrics was about, and then the novelists that came, the playwrights who emerged during that time, and the, and the youth culture that we were part of, was all to do with opposing that coarseness, of rejecting, if you like, that money-based sense of people's value. And it wasn't a mistake that somebody like Morrissey, I mean, I know Morrissey is somewhat tarnished now by the remarks that he's made and the positions he's taken. We won't address that here, but um, it's certainly disappointing because that man... Because he was so meaningful. ...was so meaningfully oppositional to coarseness and, you know, uh, stupidity, some of which he's taken up himself now. But in those days, that guy's interviews were just masterpieces. Yeah, Masterpieces in turning the question of a three-minute pop song into a kind of essay about English values, British values. And suddenly the references, whether they were, to, to, in one hand, to Truman Capote or to Edith Sitwell or to the aforementioned Sheila Delaney and to Kitchen Sink Drama, we were all suddenly looking at a black and white image, series of images of what, Britain had been because of this singer. we were taken up with the novels of Alan Silito and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, Carol Rice's brilliant movie based on the same, you know, This Sporting Life, David's Story, all that culture of working class self-seeking and self-invention, as you rightly put it, was there in those pop songs. And that great stylish resistance was before us. That's where we got it from. And we were competitive with each other and trying to know more about it, trying to uh, tap deeper into what all of that was. I mean, that sounds like an intellectual exercise from this distance. At the time, it was called fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it, it, it perfectly perfect. Exactly. It was just, yeah, it was what was in the charts. It, it was, was what was yeah. in the NME every yeah. week.
1: I mean, the arguments yeah. about whether the Thompson Twins were as bad a band as what you thought they were <laughs> could go on in the pub for... For us. And of course, we were full of prejudice and, you know, we we're too harsh on somebody. I look back now and think, you know, was Mick Hucknall really, you know, untalented and wasn't he in fact quite talented and wasn't he in fact quite a good singer? You know, I look back now and, sort of, and, and I'm a traitor to my 15 year old self every day by having these opinions. But, you know, it was fun. Mm. It was all about the energy of inquiry. And, you know, before the Internet, you didn't do that on your own. Your friends were your internet; they were your web, and there was a worldwide aspect to it. And that you know, these fan clubs and these bands would take you over the water to other fans in other places. There was a kind of interwebs, <laughs> but among among human beings who were just sort of, as it were, in each other's presence. And it was about presence. There's a song by a great band, Orange Juice. Yeah, and it's the title is "What Presence." I've never forgotten it. It was almost a title for Mayflies before Mayflies arrived, and was the and again the, like, Edwin
0: Collins. I mean, what just a phenomenal lyricist as well, just and
1: brilliantly ironic yeah. and funny. I mean, you, we are talking about language here. You know, Edwin Collins or um, Roddy Frame of Aztec yeah. Camera. These guys were sixteen, seventeen when they were writing those brilliant, ironic, you know, amusing commentaries. In the form of a three-minute pop song. People say, Oh, yeah, that, that's unbelievable. Those kids couldn't have been that clever. I mean, they weren't even at university yet. Yeah. Half of them didn't even go to university. They were they were brilliant out of their circumstances and with the great delightful inventiveness they had. And that's
0: Tully. Yeah. To bring it finally back to the, the book, Andrew. Um people will read this and people will love it. People will be, I'm sure, very moved by it if they haven't already picked up a copy. The first half of the novel, the childhood, the boys, the lads yep. in Manchester falling in love with each other, falling in love with girls, all the rest of it, rocking and rolling. Then the second half obviously has a necessarily more sombre mood to it. How How is that to write? There's a very considered, that looking back, you're in the thick of the action in the first half of the book. In the second half of the book, it is a reminiscence. It's beautifully, beautifully done.
1: It's a game of two halves. Mm. And this novel is is the two halves of, of a rather sort of involved match. And I think that the typewriter certainly did slow down in the writing of that second half. I and mean, was, I was heartbroken writing it. And I feel that all the lessons of their youth, all the sort of gleaming certainties of their early lives came to bear on that question of what happens when one of them needs you and is facing something terrible. These two friends who'd ran the roads together and who had, in a sense, defined their existence as a group with great energy and fun and noise now needed each other 30 years later for a different reason. And Tully's asking his friend what the loyalty actually amounts to. Can he stick by him? Can he see him through to the end now? Was it all just, you know, fun and song lyrics and showing off and, you know, being a teenager... Or was it actually a bond that you could carry all the way to the end? And that, for me, is probably the largest theme I'll ever have as a writer. Yeah. You know? And it landed, if you like, in my writing so naturally out of life's events that, yes, the typewriter slowed down, but it was no less determined to get to the end. And I knew that by that last kick of the ball, the reader will have had gone through, if you like, life's real energies... And I think that's what fiction is for. is to, as it were, slow your life down and give you the chance while you're turning those pages to enter into the very essence of life again.
0: Yeah. Beautifully put. Andrew, thank you so much. No one will be the same after closing that last page of, of Mayflies. Um, thank you so much for talking.
1: What a pleasure. Time. Thanks for having thank me. Thank
0: you. My thanks to Andrew O'Hagan and Mayflies is out now, published by Faber. This programme was produced by Holly Fisher and I've been Robert Bounds. And thank you very much for tuning in.